Welcome to the Australian Jewish Historical Society podcast. With records dating back to 1788, this series promises to bring to life some of the many stories the Society has preserved about the impact Jews and Jewish organisations have had and continue to have on Australian life. Be sure to visit ajhs.com.au to explore the many databases, photos, stories and articles now available online. Hello and welcome to In Times Gone By. This week we have a whole collection of stories, but before we get to that, just a reminder that if you have information or stories about any people who had an early influence on the colony in Australia, please get in touch with the Australian Jewish Historical Society via the website ajhs.com.au. We'd love to hear from you and feature some of that information in future podcasts. This episode really takes a look at a whole collection of different influences from all over the country. We will travel from Sydney all the way through to Western Australia. Andrew Demetz, his second wife Anne and his six daughters in 1834 operated a seminary boarding school in Buckingham Street, Surrey Hills, Sydney, known as Demetz Ladies Academy. In 1824, Daniel Cooper, a pardoned convict, appointed the colony's architects Francis Greenway to design a mansion known as Cleveland House, which he then leased to Andrew. The academy operated in the house until 1843. Later, the school was moved to premises in Elizabeth Street near Hunter Street, where it remained from 1843 to 1866. Cleveland House became the private home of Isaac Levy and his wife Dina in 1855. It's a heritage-listed property and still stands today. Andrew was a London stockbroking agent, but unfortunately was not so lucky as a businessman and suffered insolvency twice in England, firstly in 1829 and again in 1832. The second insolvency was possibly the catalyst for the family's emigration to New South Wales, the family arriving on the Sir Joseph Banks vessel on the 15th of December 1833 with their six daughters, Esther, 22, Julia, 21, Angelina, 19, Matilda, 16, Isabella, 15, and Rosetta, 13. On their arrival in Sydney, the family rented temporary accommodation at 105 Pitt Street and started advertising a ladies' establishment to provide polite female education to commence in January 1834. The cost would be £60 per annum. An advertisement was placed in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 2nd of January 1834. The female Demet's older children and their mother had been teachers and sketchers in England, so were well qualified to impart their art drawing to the daughters of the gentry of the colony. When the academy opened, there were 17 students. It's noted that the family did fairly well, as they were able to maintain a coach and horses, something quite extravagant for the times. The family moved on to Newtown, with the school and a dairy with 16 cows and a bull in the paddock behind the house. When the family again became insolvent in November, the house and dairy were sold. There were a number of servants, mainly convicts, 
that worked in the household, plus a dodgy dairyman. And in 1837, there were seven women and four men, nursery maids, housemaids, ladies' maids, laundry maids and needlewomen, and sometimes the women had several occupations. Between 1837 and 1839, however, there were ongoing problems with the servants, either for stealing or absconding from the house. It appeared that the servants took advantage of all situations to cause problems. In one instance, when the convict servants Anne Welsh and Mary Simpson were taken to court for being out at night without a pass, the magistrate was told that it was a regular occurrence for the servants to leave the house at night after the family had retired to bed. But Andrew Demetz optimistically claimed that since he found the cellar door still locked in the morning, the women could not have got out, despite eyewitnesses telling police to the contrary. He invariably gave his servants good character reference and requested they be returned to his service after their time in prison. The police and magistrates were puzzled by such loyalty to these devious staff, who were called the most abandoned creatures by one magistrate. The authorities recommended he replace them with free immigrants, but he refused. As a sideline, the family operated the Cleveland Dairy with 16 cows and a bull in the paddock behind the house. Again, staffing became a major issue, and on one occasion in 1838, a free servant working in the dairy was charged with embezzlement. When appearing before the magistrate, the defendant was discharged, as there was no discrepancy in the milk account, with the observation that the milk accounts would puzzle even a clearer-headed man. In 1842, Anne de Metz advertised for a housemaid in a laundress, stipulating that they be immigrants. Apparently, she at least had had enough of convicts, ex-convicts and the children of former convicts as employees. It appeared that financial difficulty followed Andrew de Metz, and whilst he continued to work as a stockbroking agent, his life became very difficult when he became entangled in the business affairs of his two son-in-laws, Lawrence Spire, husband of Angelina, and Moses Brown, the husband of Matilda, who both experienced financial loss during the severe depression of the 1840s. In November 1843, de Metz was declared bankrupt for the third time. The Demetz Ladies Academy, being legally in Andrew's name, could be seized at any time by the creditors. Fearing this, the family moved the academy and their home to a less resplendent building in Elizabeth Street near the Supreme Court. This was reopened in 1848, and this time in the names of the daughters only. By 1843, four daughters were still living at home. Matilda married in 1834 and Angelina in 1835, Rosetta married Stephen Spire in January 1840, but died in December that year during childbirth. Isabella died in 1841. Esther and Julia remained single. One of the daughters was still advertising lessons in 1868, 35 years after the school had begun, indicating that the academy had weathered the storms, providing a livelihood for several sisters. In 1785, was transported from England in 1815 as a convict to New South Wales, receiving a conditional pardon in 1818 and an absolute pardon in 1821. Once pardoned, he became a successful merchant, financer, shipowner and shipping agent, as our story unfolds. He married in 1819 to a fellow convict, Hannah Dodd. His first business interests were a general store, an adjoining inn, and he had a small investment in shipping and a brewery. 
His fortune developed when he became a partner in the firm Hutchison, Terry & Co., also known as the Waterloo Co. And in 1825, he and Solomon Levy became the sole owners of the firm, which became generally known as Cooper & Levy, a little of which we have learned about in a previous podcast. The firm continued to have spectacular success, expanding into importing all kinds of goods, pioneering the export of Australian wool and investing in whaling and sealing expeditions. The firm's ships visited many parts of the coast of New Zealand and other places such as Tahiti. Port Cooper and Port Levy on Banks Peninsula were named in their honour, but the former was renamed Littleton by the surveyors of the Canterbury Association. Among other properties, the firm acquired the estate of Captain John Piper, which included more than 1,100 acres, 4.5 kilometres squared, at Wallara and Rose Bay. In 1826, Levy left Sydney for England to further the firm's business interests. While he was there, he became involved with Thomas Peel in the colonisation of Western Australia, which was a financial disaster for him, and he didn't return to Australia. Cooper continued to manage the firm and built up a personal fortune in real estate independent of his interest in the firm. He opposed the efforts of the Bank of New South Wales in forcing his firm out of the banking business and was elected a governor of the bank in 1828. In October 1831, Cooper sailed for England. He undertook a general supervision of the firm from England and appointed managers in Sydney. He died at Brighton, England on the 3rd of November 1853. His third wife, Alice, survived him. He had no children, but had taken great interest in the education and business training of a nephew who bore his own name and became his major heir and later becoming Sir Daniel Cooper, Speaker for the First Parliament of New South Wales. We'll learn a little bit more about Sir Daniel Cooper in a later podcast. Jacob Levy Montefiore was born on the 11th of January 1819 in Bridgetown, Barbados, the son of Isaac Levy and Esther Hannon, nee Montefiore, a well-respected Sephardi family, the first cousin of Sir Moses Montefiore, and the family was also connected to the Rothschilds by marriage. Jacob and his brothers took on the name Montefiore. His father died in 1837 and Jacob decided to join his uncle in Sydney, arriving in October that year. Jacob soon started trading on his own account. He was well-educated and enjoyed writing plays, including one called The Jewel, which he translated from the French and performed this at the Theatre Royal in 1843, the theatre that Barnett Levy had created, Barnett, you may remember from an earlier podcast. Not only was he a writer of plays, but also an operatic libretto. John of Austria, which was set to music by Isaac Nathan, another of our early identities, his story also having been told in an earlier podcast, was performed in 1847. In 1844, he made a trip to England, and on his return in 1845, he became a partner of the wealthy Scott Robert Graham. This was his entree into the work of business. The company then known as Montefiore, Graham & Co. opened a branch in Brisbane, and in 1849, another in Melbourne, where Jacob's brother, Eliezer, took charge. 
The company also acquired a total of 270,000 acres on leasehold in the districts of Guida, New England, Moreton Bay and Wellington. In 1855, all were transferred to Montefiore and in 1861, the partnership was dissolved. Jacob was intrigued by the political economy and in 1853 became chairman of the committee of the opposed William Charles Wentworth's constitution, thereby becoming a lifelong friend of Henry Parks, known as the Father of Federation. In May 1856, Jacob was nominated to the Legislative Council. He advocated a tax on unproductive land to encourage farming, reduce land speculation and provide revenue. He also recommended a central or national bank and a railway from Sydney to Melbourne. In 1861, he published a book, Catechism of the Rudiments of Political Economy, an Unanswerable Defence of Free Trade. By 1855, Jacob commenced his journey joining a number of company boards, including directorship of the Bank of Australasia, the New South Wales Marine Assurance Company from 1857, and a committee member of the Chamber of Commerce. In 1858, he arranged in London for Baron Rothschild to finance railway construction in the colony. But unfortunately, Charles Cowper, chairman of the Parliamentary Select Committee, delayed submitting the scheme to Parliament. Without a doubt, Jacob Montefiore was one of Sydney's foremost businessmen. He had become a magistrate in 1857, joined the Royal Sydney Yacht Squadron, and from 1863 was the Belgian Consul. Chairman of the Chamber of Commerce in 1866 to 69, and from 1874 to 1875, he led its campaign for extending electric telegraphs and for a Pacific Mail service. He was a founder of the City Bank and its chairman from 1863 to 1870, became the founding chairman of the Pacific Fire and Marine Insurance Company, formed with colonial capital in 1862, was a director of the Sydney Exchange Company, the Australian Gaslight Company, Mutual Life Association of Australasia, as well as a number of mining companies. From 1862 to 1865, he traded on his own and lived in Birchgrove House in Balmain with his brother Octavius and a cousin, Herbert. In 1867, he joined S.A. Joseph and was established Montefiore Joseph and Company agents for the Aberdeen Clipper Line. From 1864 to 1872, Jacob, together with a number of other merchants, purchased thousands of acres of land in Leichhardt, South Kennedy districts, and on the Darling Downs. And during that time, Jacob, through his free trade and dissolution of the Assembly over the fiscal policy, became president of the Free Trade Association in 1865. Jacob was certainly not idle as a director of the Sydney Sailors' Home. He was a member of the commission to play the public reception for the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Alfred, second son of Queen Victoria in 1867. He became extremely political, thus being appointed in 1874 to the Legislative Council on Sir Henry Park's recommendation, but resigned in 1877. Jacob had been a member of the Jewish congregation from his arrival in the colony and advocated the claims of the community for a share in state aid to religion in 1845. In 1868, he secured official recognition by the Council of Education of the Sydney Hebrew Certified Denominational School. In 1876, Jacob returned to London and whilst there became 
director of the Queensland National Bank and the Queensland Investment and Lang Mortgage Company. He continued whatever business activity he could to improve and create more investments and capital, including a syndicate that offered to lay a submarine cable between Java and Cape York, the profits to be divided between the syndicate and the New South Wales government. Despite repeated appeals to the government, Sir Daniel Cooper rejected the plan as absurd and too costly. Another syndicate he was involved in was that of the Australian Transcontinental Railway, who had plans to build a railway from Roma to the Gulf of Carpentaria in return for a land grant of 10,000 acres. Again, this was defeated in the Queensland Parliament in 1883, all very short-sighted. In 1880, Montefiore served on the London Commission for the Sydney International Exhibition, which he had promoted. He did miss that country of adoption and wrote to Sir Henry Parks in 1881 saying that it may be you are right that I could have been more useful out there than I can be here, but I'm afraid that the callings of ambition are in some degree the prompters for here and I'm lost among the millions and to court public favour is rather too costly an experiment. Jacob Montefiore died from heart disease at his home in London on the 24th of January 1851, leaving his estate to his wife Carolyn Antonine Geraldine Loyette, whom he married in London in 1851. We will learn more about the very large Montefiore family and its influence on so much of our Australian Jewish history in a future podcast. To continue our stories, I'd like to introduce the next of our storytellers, Ruth Lillian, a name who may be familiar to many of you keen listeners of the podcast. Ruth has been the coordinator and has written many of the stories, doing lots of research behind the scenes. So it's my privilege to introduce Ruth to tell the next of our stories. Thank you, Anthony. And I'm very happy to be able to continue our storytelling with today's episode as we move across our vast country to Western Australia and an introduction to Elias Solomon. Elias was born in London in 1839. His family arrived in South Australia but didn't stay and settled in New South Wales. Following his father's death, the family returned to Adelaide and Elias worked for his uncle, an auctioneer and in time he became the chief clerk of the company. Adelaide at that time was developing and growing, again with many Jews. It appears that during Elias's time in Adelaide, one of the main streets, Timpson Street, was better known as Jew Street. At the age of 29, he moved to Western Australia and established a business in Fremantle, together with two of his nephews. As an auctioneer, as well as a grocery, wine and spirit. After the business dissolved, he became a business partner with Lionel Sampson, who we'll hear about a little later. As seemed to be the case with a number of early Jewish merchants and business folk, Elias was more successful as a politician. In 1877, he served a six-year term on the Fremantle Town Council, becoming Mayor of Fremantle on three occasions between 1889 and 1901. During this time, 
he introduced many of the well-known features in Fremantle, the town hall, the markets and the Fremantle Hospital. In 1892, by a very slim margin of seven votes, he was elected to the Australian Legislative Assembly at a by-election for South Fremantle. So successful was he in running as an independent that he was returned unopposed for another two terms in 1894 and 1897. From the Legislative Assembly, Elias contested the first federal election for the seat of Fremantle in March 1901 as one of the three free trade candidates and became a member of the first Commonwealth Parliament with a majority of the votes, amounting to a thousand more than his Labour opponent. At that time, there were four Jewish members in the Australian Parliament, namely Isaac Isaacs, who later became the first-born Governor-General. We will learn more about him in a later episode. At that time, there were four Jewish members in the Australian Parliament, namely Isaac Isaacs, who later became the first Australian-born Governor-General, and we will learn more about him in a future podcast. Unfortunately, Elias was not successful in the 1903 election when he lost the seat to Labour. He was, like most early prominent business and political Jewish settlers in Australia, involved in the community. He would write to his mother in Adelaide saying that he wished there was a synagogue that he could attend. Interestingly enough, he was the first person to bring matzah into WA. 1902 was an excellent year for WA. Elias had become president of the Western Australia Hebrew Congregation and a trustee for the lot granted to the congregation by the state government and his wish came true, laying the foundation stone for the Fremantle Synagogue. His home was built in a street that bore his name, Solomon Street. He had married twice with a large family of 11 children. He died in 1909 and is buried in Fremantle Cemetery. Lionel Sampson was certainly a pioneer. He was born in 1799 in London and had a long English heritage with family history going back to the early 1700s. He was well-educated, having attended Oxford University, and while still living in London, he and his father had seats on the London Stock Exchange. In 1829, Lionel, having developed an interest in Australia by his friendship with Captain James Stirling, who went on to become the governor of the Swan River Colony, the Stirling Highway bearing his name. He set sail for Australia together with his brother William. They had been given a royal farewell with the Prince of Wales attending. Lionel arrived appropriately with wine and liquor, which he had planned to sell, a prefabricated house, sheep and horses, and four servants to help get his brother and himself started for their new life. They were granted land to the value of what he brought out with him, and during that first year, he also purchased two lots, number 27 and number 28, 
in what was the first land sale in Western Australia. It certainly made a difference arriving in this new land with funds. His first business was a merchant liquor and general import-export company, and it still stands today. The office was well located and easy for his goods to be offloaded from ships at South Bay, Fremantle, and they transported down and loaded onto barges to travel up the river to Perth. He was interested in winemaking and had established vineyards. He produced woven bulk bags for industrial use and industrial packaging. He also owned Sadlier's Transport, a national transport and freight forward company. A building named after him, the Lionel Sampson Building, is in Cliff Street and is a listed heritage building. Lionel was a friendly soul and was liked by all, including those in high positions, such as the governor and the local colonists. He met everyone who came through to Fremantle. As well as his business, he was the local postmaster, distributing the mail whenever a ship arrived in port. People came to collect their mail and being the kind of fellow he was, people borrowed postage money from him and whilst visiting, drank his brandy. As many of the early Jewish settlers, finding a wife in the colony was not that easy. And in 1842, Lionel returned to London to marry, but his first choice was not to be, and eventually he married the daughter of his first love, Fanny Levi. During their marriage, they produced three sons and three daughters, they claimed to fame, they were the first Jewish family to settle in Western Australia. Lionel, like so many others, was not idle. He was involved in many ventures and activities. One other honorary but official position was being a member of the Legislative Council, serving under three governors. He was very proud of the fact that two of his sons became mayors of Fremantle, as well as his grandson, Sir Frederick Sampson, who was mayor for 37 years. Lionel died on the 15th of March, 1878. His obituary read, to write a sketch of Mr. Sampson's colonial career would be to write a history of the colony itself. <laughs> Thanks, Ruth, for sharing those stories. And thank you also for your tremendous work in coordinating this podcast series and also for your contribution in the writing and research of so much of what we hear in these episodes. Don't forget, if you have a contribution which might be of interest to add to future episodes, please be in touch with the Australian Jewish Historical Society via the website ajhs.com.au. Thanks also to the Australian Jewish News. They provide an excellent platform for these podcasts and really is helping us reach an ever-growing audience. The production, as always, done by my team at ComTogether. In our next episode, we'll be looking at the Jewish women of the colony. I'm Anthony Pearl, and on behalf of the Australian Jewish Historical Society, I look forward to having you join us next time. <laughs>